Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. We are continuing along this magical journey that we're on of our special mini-series on our favorite topic, Breakpoints. We have leaders and experts from two breakpoint-setting organizations, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, or CLSI, and the United States Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, or USCAST, to teach us everything we need to know about how we interpret whether or not we can use antimicrobials to treat our patients. If you missed our earlier episodes, please go back and listen to the first parts of this series. Let's reintroduce our speakers. So first, Dr. Mike Satlin is with us. He is an infectious diseases physician and the clinical director of transplant oncology infectious diseases at Cornell. He is the co-chair currently of the Breakpoint Working Group on the CLSI Subcommittee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, and we are super excited to have him back. Hi. Thanks, Erin. It's great to be back. Hi. So next is Dr. Jim Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the clinical supervisor for infectious diseases at Oregon Health and Science University. He also previously served as the co-chair of the Breakpoints Working Group of the CLSI and is now the chair of the CLSI AST subcommittee. Hello, Aaron. Thanks again for the invitation. And last, but certainly not least, Dr. Jason Pogue. Dr. Pogue is a clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases pharmacist at Michigan Medicine. He is the past president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists and currently the chair of the executive committee of USCAST. Jason, welcome to Breakpoints. Great to be back. So today we have come to our fifth and final episode of our Breakpoints series. I'm a little sad, but also very excited to talk about today's topic, which I affectionately refer to all of the weirdo bug drug combinations. So we're going to get into either drugs we don't use that frequently or weird non-fermenters or combinations of the two, but important things that clinicians need to know. So high-level outline of today's episode, we are going to go through the colistin breakpoints slash polymyxin. Then on that theme, we're going to talk about acinetobacter a little bit, particularly minocycline for acinetobacter. And then we're going to end with everyone's favorite bug, or at least our good friend Sam Aiken's favorite bug, stenotrophomonas. And then we will have rounded out our breakpoint series. So with no further ado, let's jump right into it and talk about colistin. So colistin polymyxin, the current breakpoint before the update um, was set at less than or equal to two is susceptible. And I think we're going to get all into all kinds of into the testing issues with this drug and the headaches of this drug and the decade of Jason's life he spent on this drug. Um, but when I was training and when I was coming up, an idea was less than or equal to two for acinetobacter, but we kind of extrapolated that to everything was the susceptibility breakpoint. And recently this was looked at. So whoever wants to start, can we talk about when we first started looking at this breakpoint and why the update was made? So I think first and foremost, it's important that we have a moment of silence for the decade that Jason lost to this drug. I agree. Yeah. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your moment of silence there. This all started, you know, with the joint CLSI UCAST working group to kind of evaluate this because the testing was an absolute mess. I mean, 
this stuff would stick to everything. It would stick to plastic. You'd walk by it. It'd stick to you. There was questions about whether or not you should add surfactant to the media. There was, I mean, you name it, this drug sucks. Um, from testing it in the in vitro lab standpoint, it's brutal. And so there was all of that. And so us and UCAST kind of worked on trying to get some of that stuff smoothed out. We kind of did. We kind of got as happy as anyone was ever going to get. And I mean, nobody was happy, but it was, you know, the, the least evil that we could basically come up with. Well, then, you know, because we were dealing with so many issues prior to the availability of Ceftaz-AB and Ceftoltezo, that we really started to see the clinical data sets with this stuff pop up. And what you consistently noticed was this stuff didn't work. And this stuff appeared to hurt people. And, you know, it was like, this stuff is not good at all. And I think it was really um, David Van Dyne's paper with Ceftaz AV in clinical infectious diseases that was really kind of one of the major tipping points. You know, I mean, it, it showed you just how bad using that door analysis this stuff really was. And then in rapid succession, there were a couple of other papers with plazomycin, you know, with Miro Vabor. There was just kind of this steady drumbeat of this drug sucks and this drug is not as good as Comparator. And so that really kind of led us to bring all of the clinical data. And there had been some updates to some of the PKPD discussion since the original UCAS CLSI working group. And when you put all of this together... What was really clear was that this drug didn't work very well, and it was really a major problem. And the other issue was that it really appeared that people were using this preferentially over some of the newer agents because there was an S by it, and it was cheap. And so I think that was another concern that kind of went into some of these discussions. And really, long story short, was after looking at the clinical data and looking at the PKPD, I think the consensus in the room was that, you know, we we were seriously thinking about killing this stuff and just kind of saying, you know, no. But I think there was so much pushback in the room. And the room was probably split, I don't know, Mike, what do you think, 50-50 on this about kill it versus you have to keep it because there's places in the world, there's nothing else. And, you know, all of this other stuff, but it was very clear that S did not mean success by any standard when it came to looking at this drug's data. And I think that was how we kind of came to the intermediate only breakpoint, intermediate only, and then resistant, because it was a way to try and tell folks, Hey, this is, this is not good. And from a PKPD standpoint and clinical evidence standpoint, it doesn't look like this works very well. And again, I know it was that really that consensus guideline that I know Jason was very, you know, intimately involved with that was published. It was really a big part of the impetus to kind of move this forward. And so I think that's kind of the backstory of how we ended up on just kind of the I and then R breakpoint was a way to kind of say all of that to folks. And if you look in the in M100, I don't think I've ever seen a paragraph of warnings like we have stacked next to those breakpoints for any other drug ever. And I think it tells you exactly how we felt about it after reviewing all of these data. Yeah, thank you, Jim. That's great background. So yes, the new and current breakpoint 
from the CLSI perspective is less than or equal to two is, is I. So there is no susceptible and then greater than or equal greater than four is resistant. So Jason, can you tell us more of the history and all the work US cast and yourself did really just an incredible body of work. So here's your moment to shine. Incredible body of work on a basically worthless compound. Yes. <laughs> some, some to be proud of. Right. So I, I, I agree with, I mean, most of what Jim said and, and most of what CLSI did here, we, t- we took a little bit of a different tact, but in the same vein. And again, if you think about those three pillars that we talked about, right? So first is MIC distributions, right? Well, you can't test it. Well, that's a problem, right? Most people can't get an accurate test when they actually have to take care of a patient. That's problematic. So that's the first pillar, right? Second pillar is PKPD. What's the most common place you have to use this drug? Pneumonia. Well, guess what? The animal data suggests it doesn't work in the lung. Okay, that's problematic as well. So what's the third piece of the story? The clinical data. We now have two randomized controlled trials comparing monotherapy to combination therapy. Between it, over 800 patients getting colistin-based therapy and RCTs. Mortality rate between 40 and 50%. Failure rate somewhere around 70%. Those are not good numbers. And so the, the, the path that Jim and Mike and the CLSI took, I think is very fair. The thing that dissuades people from using these agents, I think is fantastic. Oh, I didn't even mention the fact that it comes with toxicity in 30 to 50% of patients who take it too. So just the, the icing on the crap cake right there for everybody. And so, so I, I think that what CLSI did was very fair. We just did a little bit differently. Um, again, I, Clinically, again, look at the IDSA guidance document, look at the ESCMID guidelines that directs you to where these should be considered in patients. And, and again, that's not the point of our conversation here today. But what we tried to do is we we tried to put the normal pieces to the story to make breakpoints. And again, this applies for both colistin and polymyxin B, but we, we try to play the same kind of things that we normally do. And so based off of the doses that are given to patients, Again, I am not saying those are the right doses. I'm Even though I'm part of a guideline document of where those doses come from, I'm not saying they're the right balance between safety and efficacy. But the assumption is, is that people are going to use those doses because those are the guideline-based recommendations. If that's the case, you can achieve PKPD targets. NYC is up to two. Now, again, that assumes you're not talking about a lung infection because there are no PKPD targets because the, 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 the highest dose you can give a mouse before they fall over and die, you don't get any activity of the drug in that situation. And so what we did is we set a breakpoint of two based off the PKPD, um, but it's a non-pneumonia breakpoint. So basically, we have a breakpoint of two for both of these agents, assuming that you're using uh, the polymyxin guideline doses. However, the exception is pneumonia. There's no breakpoint because there's just, again, PKPD data, can't test it, and the clinical data suggests it doesn't work in that disease state. And so that's kind of how we went about it. So I think it's a similar place to where Jim and Mike are. We just went about it a little bit differently. And Jason, when you say it doesn't work for the lungs, because I get this question a lot, is that because the drug doesn't penetrate into the lungs or is it because something else is going on in the lungs or why doesn't it work for pneumonia? 
Yeah, it depends who you ask. Um, my belief, when I look at the literature, I think there's a surfactant effect. Um, and I think some of the polymix and derivatives that are coming down the road don't seem to have that effect. And so they do a little bit better in lung models. They actually do normally in lung models. They also have other advantages to them as well, particularly from a safety standpoint. So I think it's a surfactant effect that's going on there. And so you're not seeing activity. People will talk about not getting good concentrations um, in the lung. And there's certainly, it's not great penetration, but I, I don't think it's just that piece of it. I think that there's actually a surfactant. So the drug that's there is not, not active too. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So to summarize cholestin and polymyxin then, um, so USCAS does give less than or equal to two for non-pneumonia. CLSI less than or equal to two is intermediate only. And then we did touch on it. We mentioned it briefly, but testing this drug is a nightmare. You have to send it for broth microdilution. And even that's really challenging. I know in our lab, the technicians used to put up this like homemade barrier sign that was like, don't come near us for trying to do polymyxin testing. Um, so it's very, very challenging all around. It's super toxic. And really the only way you should be using Clistin is if you don't have access to novel beta-lactam agents. So the BLBLIs and or sofiterocol, um, if you have something that's pan-resistant to all of those novel agents, then perhaps you need to bust it out if you truly have no other option. But they're really just, thankfully, if you have access to the novel agents, I know novel is maybe not the right term since some of them are coming up on 10 years of availability, but if you have access to those drugs, really no role for, for Colistin anymore. Let me just, I mean, I agree with everything. I don't think, I think this should be a last, last, last resort option for all the reasons mentioned. And it's not just because it's toxic, it's also because they're poorly effective. And people don't appreciate the poorly effective part. But uh, there is a Kaliskin disc elution test that you potentially could use. All you need are four tubes with some broth and discs, and you can put different numbers of discs in the tubes that correlate essentially to MICs of 0.5, 1, 2, and 4. It's in the CLSIM 100 document. Potentially, that's something your lab could bring up. If you were in an area where you were seeing all these MBLs and you didn't, you didn't have you know, Cifidoracol, uh, for example, and you still needed to use this drug, that is potentially a path you could take, assuming you don't have reference broth microdilution available to you. But e-test doesn't work specifically. DISC doesn't work. Most of anything on an automated panel generally doesn't work. So it's a big problem. I just wanted to highlight, is that a potential solution? Yeah, and That's one super. thing that I'd highlight for the audience too is that the issue is false susceptibility. So it's like the worst case scenario too. Like if you if you believe there's a breakpoint and you see that it's in where you think is susceptible, the issue is that you actually get false susceptibility. And then to make matters worse, the FDA won't clear <laughs> anything. So, you know, it's such a mess that it's not even funny. And this is Jim's favorite. He mentioned that in our initial thing. This is his favorite breakpoint. Yes, what is his? I feel nerdy. Because I learned so much from it. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. That's really helpful. And I think, so in clinical practice now, one of the rare times we might still use polymyxins is for the treatment of Acinetobacter. And so that segues nicely into our next bug drug weirdo combo I want to talk about, which is minocycline for Acinetobacter. So this is something I think that's gaining increasing I don't want to say popularity, but as we loathe colistin more, we've looked at other acinetobacter alternatives and minocyclins, an option. And so currently the breakpoint sits at less than or equal to four is susceptible. And then eight intermediate greater than 16 is resistant. Jason, do you want to talk about some of the work USCAST is doing in this space about updated PKPD knowledge and data and where this breakpoint might be moving toward? 
Yes, I would love to. And I would encourage everyone. So uh, recently out, but first authors, uh, someone very near and dear to our heart, Aaron, uh, Alex Leepak, the publication that gets into all of the data that includes minocycline is available. So if you take a look at that, you can see it. Um, but yes, U.S. CAS, the acinobacter, is something that we're trying to tackle currently. We've assessed uh, four drugs, um, kind of a representative beta-lactam with ceftazidime, a representative uh, aminoglycoside with amikacin. We did Cipro, and then we did minocycline. And so basically, long story short, you can go look at all the data. And there's neutropenic thigh models. There's neutropenic lung models. They kind of tell us the same story. Um, and the break point depends on the dose that you give. Um, so if you give 100 BID, it would be 0.5. Um, if you give 200 BID, which is quote unquote high dose of minnow, I think it's what a lot of us give clinically when we're treating an acinetobacter, the break point would be one. Um, and, and what I really think is important for the audience to understand is that if you apply that, that break point of one, so even with high dose, you're talking about 30-ish percent of carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. Carbapenem-susceptible acinetobacter are exquisitely susceptible to minocycline, even at that lower dose with a 0.5 break point. Um, but if you're talking about giving high dose minocycline 200 twice a day, break point would be one, and you're talking about 30-ish percent susceptibility. Amongst carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. Amongst carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. Okay. An important update then, because I think I think we do use the 200 BID clinically, but I think we, I usually think it's going to be susceptible, but we are learning that and we're seeing that at our own center too, that the susceptibility is actually much lower than we had anticipated, which is a bummer. I like minocycline. Um, but bummer. Mike, Jim, any comments? Is CLSI looking at minnow acinetobacter? Yeah, so Acinetobacter is definitely a priority organism that we want to tackle. As uh, Sulbactam Durlobactam comes in, we hope that this will be a springboard to uh, really also look at uh, Sulbactam, of course, which is a, you know, Amsulbactam. We don't have just Sulbactam, so we have to use Amsulbactam, but as well as, as, as the other Acinetobacter compounds. So um, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, minocycline, I, I suspect the breakpoint is also too high, as, as, as Jason's group has shown. Um, and it's something we'll be evaluating, but nothing in the immediate future, like for this year. Like we probably won't have anything for uh, this upcoming year. But it is something that's very important. And clearly, I don't think we know how to treat carbapenem resistant acinetobacter very well. I bet you if you ask the four of us, we all probably have our own different cocktails that we use, right? And that just what that shows you is one thing, right? That we just don't know. Um, obviously, we in, eagerly anticipate the arrival of uh, Sulbactam, Durlobactam, to, to learn more about that drug, which may be a better option than all of them. I think, Aaron, this brings up a really good point about some of the older drugs. When you, when you really drill down into some of this stuff, like minocycline, we, we tried to look at this for stenotrophomonas a couple of times, and there's just nothing there. I, and I think that really underscores some of the challenges similar to what we saw with the aminoglycosides and whatnot. And I think the work that Alex and his group did, um, I think, really opens the door to a lot of interesting discussions in spaces around acinetobacter where we just didn't have data. And so I think that's some really exciting data from their group that will, will hopefully lead to some really interesting discussions. 
Yeah, I think we're seeing this bug more too, right? This used to be like only a big, bad, scary thing that happened in certain regions. And now, especially in a post-COVID world, I mean, people are seeing more Astinidobacter. And so this is coming up more frequently. And you guys, you yeah. guys are so good. We're on our fifth episode. And I feel like you could, oh, sorry, Jason, were you going to say something before? I, I don't want to cut you off by any means, especially because I think you're just going to compliment all of us. I was going to compliment you, you know, that's it. Nope. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. One thing that's really interesting about asking you back, I, I do think I agree completely that the novel agents are really sparking, looking at all of this stuff again. And one thing that's really interesting, and we talked a little bit about this before, is that we're not going to have good clinical data for any of this. And, and we're going to have to deal with the fact that the PKPD is is interesting for, for acinetobacter. And what I mean by that is that, and again, look, take a look at Alex's pub. Um, the targets are lower than they are for other organisms. And that's the case if you look at Sulbactam, it's lower. And it, it's just really interesting. And, and so you're going to have to make decisions based off of that. And I, I bet you there's going to be discomfort with doing that as well. So it's just an, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's another challenge and a very challenging pathogen. Thanks, Jason. Well, what I was going to say is you guys don't even need a hostess, which maybe you don't because five episodes in, you're so freaking good at this that Jim, you teed us up nicely to talk about our final organism, which is Stenotrophomonas, which really all I have to say is like, I was reading about this this morning to prepare for this and what a weird, what a weird situation this is. So when you look at the current M100, well, actually, I was looking at the 2019 one because I was looking for the historic perspective. So actually, I don't even know if this is in the 2023 one. I prepared poorly. Um, but at least in the 2019 one, which let's just say that's what people are looking at here. Uh, so Tycar Clef, I just want to say Tycar selling on breakpoints one time. Uh, used to have a steno breakpoint, but that's off the market. So like rest in peace. Chloramphenicol used to have a steno breakpoint. You actually can order chloramphenicol now, but I don't know that anyone's used that for anything other than VRE meningitis like ever in the last decade. So we'll move on from that, at least in the United States. So then that leaves us with a potpourri of drugs. So first and foremost is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, which has a breakpoint of less than or equal to 2 slash 38. No change in that. That is still, if you report anything for steno, I think you're reporting trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. I think that is, we would all agree, our first-line therapy, but I think we would all also agree that there's really no consensus on what dose to give and that trying to model this drug is very challenging. So, Mike, can you maybe shine some light on that? Again, we're not, there's no proposed breakpoint change at this point in time, and that is our first-line therapy for steno, but what are some of the issues that we're going to need to work through for this drug to better learn how to use it? Yeah, no, these are great questions. I mean, I was always taught this is the drug of choice for steno, right? And you know, I felt like I was always in a fight with my oncology colleagues who were worried about bone marrow suppression and patients with stenobacteremia. And I was like, no, I think this is the drug of choice. But the data really to support that are, are sparse to none. And it's really based on precedent, right? That's what we're, we've used. That's what we've been comfortable with. Um, so there's a couple issues with trimethoprim sulfa that make it hard to evaluate from a breakpoint point of view. One, it's hard to test. So, you know, by our reference method, broth microdilution, you're supposed to call it at 80% inhibition. Well, my 80% might be different than Jason's, might be different than yours, Aaron, or, or Jim's. So that creates some challenge in testing. The other big problem is that we like to typically use mice and generate PKPD targets in mice. Sometimes we look at efficacy in vivo in the mice. 
to see if we can get killing or not. And mice have too much thymidine. And so the more thymidine that humans have, so that uh, the animals, because there's so much thymidine, the bacteria can rescue its folate pathway and survive despite giving trimethoprim sulfa. Whereas in humans, that doesn't necessarily happen because there's much less thymidine. So the typical mouse experiments can't be done. So, you know, the current data that we have is primarily in vitro data. And there are larger animal systems that would have to be used, but they're much more expensive. So there's a bunch of challenges, I think, with uh, trim sulfa. And I would say any clinical data with steno, you thought clinical data is hard with acinetobacter. You know, think about your patients who get steno, right? And you really think you're going to be able to tease apart some improvement in outcome based on drug A versus drug B for steno. I think that's going to be, you know, near impossible. So we have some major challenges here with this bug-drug combination. We sure do. And speaking of lack of clinical data, I don't know that there are clinical data for really any of the other drugs we have breakpoints for for steno. So related to the conversation we just had for acinetobacter, minocycline also has a steno breakpoint. It's less than or equal to four, same as it was for acinetobacter. Is either organization evaluating minocycline and steno? Do we Should we anticipate changes here similar to what we heard for acinetobacter? Yeah, so we, we have a stenotrophomonas working group that has actually been kind of doing some ongoing work. And I think that's that's how we a big part of how we have really kind of come to the very sobering realization that the data is just trash. And, you know, I think that it, it's really going to, as Mike noted, create a real set of challenges. Like like you said, you think acinetobacter is bad. Just try to move out into steno. Um, and so I, I think that there are going to be some very hard discussions um, that are going to have to be had with very little clinical data, you know, so very analogous to what Jason talked about with acinetobacter. So I, I, I think stay tuned because this is going to be a really interesting area, I think, over the next couple of years. And I'll add to that, you know, specifically, um, you know, we did look at steno with minocycline and, uh, you know, nothing gets published yet. But, you know, as, as you can see, if you access the meetings, we did vote on lowering the minocycline breakpoint from susceptible less than or equal to four to less than or equal to one. And that was primarily based on PKPD data that was mostly done by the Hartford group, um, Dave Nicolau and Joe Cuddy. Um, and they have some nice, beautiful work, a few papers back to back that kind of explain this. We realized that, um, as, as Jason mentioned with acinetobacter, that that really is only if you use a 200 milligram dose every 12 hours. And even there, you don't consistently get one long kills in those models. And we know those models, especially for steno, I think are imperfect. If you look at the R squareds, you know, for example, it doesn't correlate quite as well as like fluoroquinolones for Enterobacterales or Pseudomonas. And, and I think it's really probably the drug, right? Like it's, it's more that quinolones and aminoglycosides have a nice clear, you know, correlation, whereas the tetracyclines are challenging. And I'm not a pharmacist like you all, so I don't know exactly why that is, but the models don't seem to work quite as well. But really, that's all we had. We could find one paper um, published in JEC a few years back that showed worse outcomes with MICs of four, but really, that's all we had to deal with. And then we were running up into this MIC distribution issue where the wild type goes out to one. Some people wanted to lower it to 0.5, but really, we were concerned that at that point, we, we know we're already in the wild type. And if we go further, we're almost going to be bisecting the MIC distribution. So that's sort of what led to this decision so far, but it may come out in the next year's edition of M100. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Anything to add from the USCAS perspective? 
No, this is a great work that the CLSI are doing on this. They're rocking and rolling. We're going to let them do their thing and save the world here. We look forward to it. <clears throat> one thing I do want to comment on that Mike just brought up, and this is one of the challenges with the clinical data. Again, as you, as they both said, Senatrophimos, just, this is on steroids now, but that's one of the challenges with the, the clinical data is that the patients with the higher MICs have bad outcomes, but they're inherently different patients often, right? Think about the patients who you treat who have higher MICs, they have more exposures, that's they have more comorbidities, they have different underlying disease states. And so retrospective observational data trying to look at that is really, really flawed, even if you do it really well. And, and, and so I'm always hesitant on those retrospective clinical ones with MIC and outcomes. And then again, you get to these challenges and it's not easy because if you're going to have to rely on PKPD predominantly, but these drugs have been used for 30 years and the PKPD isn't going to be lining up with what the current breakpoints are and might kill age, that's going to be a really hard thing to work through. And I don't know the right answer, but those are going to be really challenging things to kind of work through as organizations. To chime in there with Jason's point, we're already hearing that from a lot of groups. There's a lot of concern about, you know, what are you guys going to do with steno and Bactrim and steno and minocycline? Exactly to Jason's point, you know, there's there's this dogma that these are the drugs of choice. And when you go to look for that data, you're like, uh, you know, so it, it's it's going to be it's going to be some really, I think, intense discussions. I think it's going to make Colistin look easy because Colistin, we we had very clear data that this drug sucked and was hurting people and, and not performing well. And I don't know that we're ever going to get those types of data with stenotrophomonas. Yeah, that's a good point because the next drug I want to talk about is ceftazidime. And so steno, like acinetobacter, has a lot of intrinsic resistance. It makes a metallomatolactamase. And it also is one of those bugs that kind of hangs around when you've killed everything else. And so we struggle with colonization versus infection. Do you really need to treat it? What have you? Ceftazidime currently has a breakpoint of less than or equal to eight is susceptible. We used to report ceftazidime. And I'll tell you, it was our go-to choice of we don't really know if we need to treat it. ID saying don't, the intensivists are saying yes or whomever. And it's like, okay, we'll give five days of ceftazidime. And that seemed less likely to potentially cause toxicity than high dose TMP sulfa because that drug is really hard to give IV. It comes with a lot of fluid and it can cause hyperkalemia, et cetera. And so ceftazidime seemed the lesser of evils, whether that's right or wrong. And I think that's, I don't think that's uncommon practice, but what we know is effectively ceftazidime is very rarely susceptible, even at that eight. And that that eight is probably way too stinking high. So what is the move that's going to be made with steno and ceftazidime? The kibosh. So, um, it's done. We're just killing drugs on this I mean, podcast. When you think about ceftazidime, just think about your L1 metallobeta-lactamase, your L2 cephalosporinase. You know, is that, just take a step back. Like, is that the drug you want to use? Let's assume that the patient's actually infected, right? And which sometimes patients are with steno. It's not always a colonizer, although it often is. Is that the drug you want to rely on, even if it tests susceptible? As you said, a minority, you know, probably somewhere between 15, 20% of isolates in surveillance studies tested susceptible. Is there some wild type in there that probably fits under eight? Maybe, but zero clinical data as with everything, but we don't even have clinical data. Like at least with the levofloxacin, we have clinical data comparing it to trimsulfa, 
Now, we don't know if any of those are better than placebo. I mean, I'm sure they are, but, right? <laughs> but like, they're not, but with ceftazidime, is really nothing. So it was the mechanisms of resistance, rarity of being susceptible, no clinical data. We just didn't feel comfortable having this reported as S, which is interesting because if you look at the FDA website, it is the only <laughs> antibiotic that has a stenotrophomonas breakpoint. So I'll just leave that out there. Right. So this, this is a big change, and I think this is important, but I agree with you. If you have a serious steno infection, especially steno in the blood, which came up recently at one of our community hospitals, the patient should not be on ceftazidime. And so CLSI is going to propose to remove this breakpoint. How we're handling this at UPMC is we're suppressing it and putting a comment that says ceftazidime is not recommended for the treatment of stenotrophomonas. Again, you could do that. You could report it as R, however you want to handle it. But we only report TMPSMX right now. Minnow, you have to request susceptibilities for. Ceftazidime, we have a comment. And then the, the other drug we've recently added a comment is levofloxacin. So again, you guys, you guys are so good by episode five, just segueing yourselves. But levofloxacin, Mike, you brought it up. It's the other drug we want to talk about. The current breakpoint is less than or equal to two, is susceptible. And changes were made and changes are being proposed from CLSI for that as well. So Mike, can you talk about what, what those are? So it's it's really an ongoing evaluation to figure out what to do here. And this is one of those scenarios, again, where the MIC distributions, you're sort of stuck between what the PKPD is telling you and what the MIC distributions are, meaning that, you know, we think that wild type probably goes all the way out to two, if not even out to four. And so we're probably already a little bit into the wild type. And the PKPD is telling us that, well, you know, if we want to achieve exposures that we think are going to correlate with efficacy and modeling that we need to drive that breakpoint down lower. But that would really get us like right in the middle of the breakpoint. So I guess in the interim, what we did last year was put a comment essentially that, you know, this drug really shouldn't be used as monotherapy. And, but it's something that's, we're still kind of trying to figure out uh, how to tackle. And I think as we tackle some of these other drugs with steno, you know, we may come up with an alternate approach. But our approach was really to kind of just come up with a warning that, you know, that that this drug may not be optimal. And we don't know that trimsulfa is optimal either, but we just don't have the right. clear data, you know, based on PKPD and animals and kind of our classic, you know, um, PKPD modeling to, to, to tell us that. Yeah. And that comment for levofloxacin to not use as combination therapy, that is consistent with the IDSA guidelines, again, I think you could, I think those are data you can interpret six ways to Sunday, as my grandma used to say. So there's, you know, there's a million different ways you could, you could slice that. We haven't really fully decided what to do with that levofloxacin comment. I'll be honest. We added the ceftazidine, not recommended. We don't know what to do with levofloxacin, but yeah, very, very interesting. So another drug that effectively is kind of up in the air. And then last but not least, it brings us to one last option for stenotrophomonas, which is sifiderical. Jim, I think you have a fondness in this area. So Jim, do you want to talk to us about the sifiderical breakpoint? It's one of those things that's really, really interesting when you look at it. And, you know, it's it's one of those places that the agency chose not to give the drug a breakpoint because there really weren't enough isolates in the clinical trial. But when you really look at this from an in vitro activity standpoint, it is very hard, if not impossible, to find steno isolates with MICs, I think, higher than 0.5 for sifiderical. 
To put that in perspective, remember that the Interbacter Rally's breakpoint is four or two, depending on who you look at and whatnot, right? So think about that for a sec and chew on that for a second. You're like, whoa, talk about not splitting the wild type. I mean, Sephiterocall is well outside the wild type. And I think this really raises some very interesting questions about this drug for Steno going forward, because we know that it's basically stable against the cephalosporinases. It's basically stable against a lot of the metallos. And this is really, I think, the only drug out there that you kind of look at and you go, man, just just bring me some clinical data, just a little bit here, please. Because it really does look so darn good in a test tube and in the animal models. You know, I, again, there was a lot of animal model work done with this compound um, primarily by Dave Nicolau and Joe Cuddy's group that was presented at CLSI, and it was impressive. And I think a lot of us would have been, just from a PKPD standpoint, comfortable giving this thing a breakpoint of four, but there was some hesitancy just because it, there was a complete lack of clinical data and Steno is such just a kind of weird actor to deal with. So it is something that I would really kind of encourage our listeners to, to keep an eye on going forward, because I, I, I think it's a really intriguing compound for a very problematic organism. Yeah, I think we'd all love Sephiterocol to be a great option for steno, but I think we would love that for other bugs as well. There yeah. were five patients with steno infections, incredible, four of them died. So do with that what you will, but there it is. And then the last thing, just for completeness, not that this was a steno treatment episode, but I feel like we should say it, um, polymixins for whatever it's worth. Sometimes we bust those out for steno. And then um, Ceftaz AVH-trianam in combination can be used for stenotrophomonas because of that metallobetalactamase. I think there's actually probably the most clinical data, arguably, with that combination because people feel compelled to publish the case reports when they use expensive antibiotics. But that's an intriguing space. Combination susceptibility testing is something also working on developing robust methodology for that. Um, but those aren't options. We have done that that combination for some complex stenos and like lung transplant patients or CF patients at our center. So. So Aaron, can I tell you a fun, a fun polymixin fact to wrap up on here as you brought up the polymixins as a potential treatment option? Stenotrophomonas is the one organism where you don't just interchange the two with susceptibility testing. Poly B is actually more active than colistin for stenotrophomonas. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. You see those 10 Thank years you of that. your life were worth it. Just for that one little moment. Right? Yeah. Just for that. I feel like it all set me up for that moment that I, just happened. I love learning and I love ending on a fascinating pearl. Jammer Mike, do you have anything else? I don't think you can say anything to round out this episode. That would, yeah. Nor would Let's I just let Jason shine here. That yeah. pearl cost Jason 10 freaking years. I am not going to trump him right there. Not going to do it. Yeah. I think we just take a bow and call it, gentlemen. So this concludes our fifth episode of our Breakpoint series. It has been truly exceptional talking to you guys about this over the past five weeks. I appreciate you so much. And I know we've all learned a ton. So thank you for everyone for listening to Breakpoints and following along. This episode was hosted by me, Erin McCreary. And Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, myself, and our good friend, Jason Polk, who is our panelist today. This episode was produced by Dr. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard, and it was peer-reviewed by Eileen Ahiskali and Crystal Hodge. Our production team includes Veronica Zafant and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. 
Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you could subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.